Judges chapter 15. And we're going to be looking down to verse 17. But let's open a word of prayer and we'll get started tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather together as believers and, and look into your word and, and apply it to our own lives. And, and Father, we pray uh, tonight that you would um, help us understand uh, the principles and, and what we learn here tonight about Samson and, and um, his life. And Father, help us not to make the same mistakes that he did. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, uh, be with each one that's here tonight. And for those who couldn't make it, pray for those two that, that if they're not feeling well or whatever might be the case, Lord, that you would uh, uh, help them to just be reminded that you're there with them and that uh, you can uh, assist them during this time of need. And do, Lord, we do pray for those in Afghanistan. We pray for the needs, and they're so great over there. And pray for our government and, and all the uh, mishaps that are taking place, Lord. It's just... it's. It's really unbelievable, but Lord, we know that you have a purpose and a plan for all this. And, and Father, we just pray that um, you would uh, protect those and, and be give them safe passage out of that country if they desire to leave. And um, Lord, we 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 just uh, are really overwhelmed by the evil we're seeing, and um, on every front. And we just uh, pray that you would uh, step in and override override this somehow. We we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We're in Judges chapter 15 again. Looking at uh, the Samson, the, the jilted judge tonight in verses 9 to 17. Over 200 years ago, there was a hymn writer. Some of you may recognize his name, Cowper, William Cowper. He wrote a lot of, art, a lot of hymns, actually. But he wrote one uh, called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And one of the, the, the uh, verses says this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. <laughs> and sometimes we may not understand completely what's going on in the world or even in the text of Scripture as we see here tonight with Samson. But I think when he wrote that hymn, he wanted us to be reminded that God is always constantly uh, working behind the scenes, um, behind the scenes of our lives, behind what's going on in the world, in the country, uh, to accomplish his perfect purpose and will. And that won't be thwarted. And so we can take heart in that. And, and as we look at this text tonight, we can even see this being played out in Samson's life um, over and over again, time and time again. And um, we've already discussed... Um, that, that Samson is a judge, he's one of the judges of Israel, but he's really a man of contradictions um, all the way through. He was chosen by God to deliver Israel even before he was ever even born. Yet he seemed to live every moment of his life not for God, but for himself. Um, he was to be a man separated unto the Lord in holiness and purity because of the Nazaretic vow that he took, yet he lived his life seeking one thing, to embrace ungodly women. Uh, he was to uphold this vow his entire life, yet he violated his vow on many occasions, which we've gone over. Um, and when you, when you think of Samson, you think of someone 
I mean, you know, the Sunday school image of Samson is somebody who, who's strong and breaking the chains. And, you know, we think, wow, we just glorify this guy. And then you, you start to read scripture and you realize, wow, this guy was sinful. He was selfish. He was completely devoted only to himself on every front. Yet, even with all that going against him, yet the Lord uh, used him in spite of all his failures and his shortcomings. So it gives hopefully some of us hope, <laughs> okay, that God can still use us in spite of ourselves. And uh, that may be the greatest contradiction of all. He was used by God, and yet he lived a life that was not holy and uh, kind of the antithesis of what God wanted him to live. And it's, it certainly is the most amazing aspect of Samson's life when we look at it. But in this passage before us, the events followed the, remember the failed wedding of Samson? He was going to get married, and, and uh, that kind of blew up in his face. And then, basically, uh, it began to escalate out of control. We talked a little bit about this last week. The Philistines deceived him at his wedding with this silly little riddle he made up, and he got ticked off, and he killed 30 Philistines to settle a gambling debt and uh, gave the, their clothes as the, uh, the bounty for the bet that he lost. Um, in the meantime, because he left his wedding, he left his bride at the altar. His father-in-law figured, well, you don't want her, so I'm going to give, give her to your best man. So he gets back, and the, you know his bride is given to another man. And so he gets ticked off again. He retaliates by burning the Philistines' crops, by tying foxes together and putting a, a, a torch between them and let them run through their, their harvest fields. Uh, it's just crazy how this thing just snowballs out of control. And um, we see it over and over and over again. And the Philistines, what do they do? They respond because he, he burnt all their livelihood, their crops up, and everything else, their olive orchards and everything. Um, and so the Philistines responded, and what did they do? They burnt Samson's bride and her father to death. <laughs> uh, and so he retaliates. And he kills many of the Philistines. And so we're going to continue to see this escalation of hostilities between Samson and the Philistines. And we're also going to see the response of Samson's own people from Judah. And we're going to see them turn their back on the man that was sent to lead them in victory. They literally just turned their back on him. And... Uh, We'll see, while Samson may not have been perfect, uh, he was surrounded by a people who had grown accustomed to their own plight and accustomed to the dark in which they lived and accustomed to the bondage in which they lived. They were just okay with it after a while. And so we'll see tonight this man rejected by the very people he came to save. And he will also see a man that was used by the Lord to accomplish God's will um, who was only out to serve himself. And that's just the mysterious ways of God. That's the only way you can explain that. But there's several lessons we're going to look at that, presented, that are presented in the text for us tonight. But let's, let's read the text first in, in, in Judges chapter 15, verses 9 to 17. And uh, there's a couple lessons here we'll pull out. It says, Then the, the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come 
up to bind Samson and to do him as he did to us. Once again, this philosophy of revenge. Verse 11, Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, and we may, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Well, first of all, swear to me that you will not a- attack me yourselves. And they said, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. So they're just exuberant. Um, then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. And he put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck a thousand men. Phenomenal warrior. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. Verse 17, and as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramath Lehi. Or Lehi, however you want to pronounce it. But it's, it's an incredible part of, of Scripture because you see this guy and this enemy and even his own people, just they're on this snowball effect of revenge, revenge, revenge. And everybody's looking out for themselves. And you notice here in their conversation, you don't see anything about God at all, except that finally it says the Spirit of the Lord <laughs> came upon him. And so, let's look at the Philistines and their their attack there in verse 9, the purpose of their attack. Notice, it says there in verse 9, then, then. Um, This this basically means that they were upset because of the slaughter in verse 8. They were ticked off as Samson because he, he killed a bunch of the Philistines. And up to this time, really, they had paid Samson very little attention. And um, now, because of all the death of their, their fellow warriors at Samson's hand, they see him as a, as a force that has to be reckoned with. But up until now, Samson's activities really have seemed to be related only to his personal issues. You know, when it affected him, he'd do something. Well, now it's kind of the circle's growing, right? And it's affecting more people. And it's affecting more of the Philistines, and, uh, I mean, here is a, one man who's capable of single-handedly killing a whole bunch of Philistines. Uh, that's just amazing. And so the Philistines launched their attack into Judah, which is part of the land that Samson is supposed to protect, and, and they're, they're his people, um, to remind the Israelites about just who is in charge. Because remember, the Philistines were ruling the Israelites at this time. They weren't a free people. They were in bondage to the Philistines. And you would think that they would celebrate somebody like Samson and his strength, right? Because he's there um, by God's hand to, to free them from this bondage. 
But it, it just goes to show you some people can't be helped. Right? I mean, I've dealt a lot with people and a lot of people down on their luck. A lot of people, alcohol, drug, all, the, all these kind of things, issues going on with them emotionally. And you try to get them help. You really do. You try to diligently minister to their needs the best you can. And, and they don't want it. They don't want the help. And it's, they've kind of just concluded that, nope, yeah, I'll just live on the street. I'll push my little cart around and I'll be fine. We had a lady here Tuesday morning that I had to call the police on. She was just acting irrational and I wasn't here, but I saw her on the camera. So I called the police and said, hey, I need a welfare check on this woman who's kind of in front of my office and I'm getting ready to go to work and I don't want to deal with her. I don't want to confront her because she seems kind of off base. And they said, oh, no, don't confront them. That's the worst thing you can do. You know, let us deal with it. So they came out and got her some help and she had a problem with her leg, but she was just, you know, obviously homeless and I think she was from San Leandro or whatever. But, um, you know, they, they ended up taking her to the hospital, which was probably the best place for her at this point. Um, but some people you cannot help. And here, you know, even though Samson wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing, it, it seems like the Israelites just capitulate to, well, we're just in bondage. Don't you know that these people are over us? <laughs> They're ruling us? Um, so they launch their attack, the Philistines do, into Judah. And they want to remind Israel, look, just because you got this strong guy, you need to know who's in charge here, and you better get him under control. And uh, so they have come to put Israel back in its place, even be, before it gets more out of hand. Because they thought, wow, if, if Samson did this on his own, uh, that's one thing. But if he's doing it as a representative of Israel, well, we, we better squash this out quick. Because with him on their side, we're, we're done. They, they understood that very clearly. And so you see here the, the purpose, but then you see the, the program, verse 10, of this attack. Um, it says, And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? What, what, what's, the, what's the reason here? And they said, We have come to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. So he attacked them, and they are determined to bring him into custody. And I'm sure that if they tried, they, there probably wouldn't have been a great loss of life because Samson was not someone you wanted to mess around with. And so the, the, the Philistines are after Samson. They weren't necessarily after the people of Judah, but they thought, hey, you know what? Maybe, maybe they don't understand. Maybe they have a connection to Samson that we don't. And obviously that's the way it worked out. And you look at the, the plan of attack here. They came into Judah, and they began really what you'd call a, a, a campaign of terror. It, it's kind of like what Taliban's doing in Afghanistan, really. That's, that's kind of similar to what they did. It says they made a raid on, on Lehi. That means that they began to spread out, and they began to attack houses and villages and families in Lehi. And it was an organized um, campaign of terror. They were there to intimidate until they got what they wanted and their goal is to make israel cower before them with fear i mean as i was studying this week i'm like wow this is like a perfect picture of what's going on in the world today and that is is just what they do that's what they they carry out here and and verse eight if you look back at verse eight it tells us that uh after he struck them down, a bunch of them before, last week, he went down and he stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. 
And this is an area that's located in Judah. This is an area where uh, the Philistines press them and attack them. Uh, They know that apparently Samson is there. They've set their sights on Samson, and they're determined to get him. They're not going to just give up. And I think the, the men of Judah here realize this. And so they're, they're, they're kind of going, well, you know what? Uh, do we just, what do we do here? <laughs> uh, we're not, I mean, they're, we're in bondage to them. We, we don't have any rights. They just began to believe that. And in this attack by the Philistines, we can see the vivid picture of how Satan and even his forces, his demonic forces, attack the people of God. That's, that's really what's going on here. They're, the Philistines are representatives an illustration of the enemies of the Lord. That's what they were. There's no other way to put it. And they attack in retaliation to what Samson did to them. So you had that whole revenge thing going on. And, you know, as a church, and even as Christians, we need to understand that, you know, when you, when you uh, <clears throat> trod on Satan's territory, um, he doesn't just idly sit by and go, ho-hum, oh well, whatever. No. He fights. He fights for every inch. Um, he will swiftly launch a counterattack. And we probably have all experienced this in our own lives, in our own Christian lives, in our churches that we've been part of, in organizations, whatever it might be. You know, you, you feel like, wow, you're on top of the world spiritually and everything. You know, you go to camp or family camp or marriage camp, and boy, everything is just great. And you've taken ground that Satan had. And guess what? He's not going to sit by. And sometimes you come back from an experience like that, and in one moment, man, you're just walking like you're walking in heaven almost. You're just spiritually high, and you, and you come back to your everyday life, and within a week, you're just beside yourself. And it's, it's the headway that, that Satan begins to work. He begins to arrange things. He begins to cause frustration in your spiritual life. We can't be possessed by Satan or a demon or anything like that as a Christian, but trust me, he does not just let us do whatever we want whenever we want. He wants to influence us for his cause. And if, if we are the Lord's, then maybe he can disqualify us. Maybe he can cause our testimony to suffer. Maybe he can make us less effective in our walk for Christ. But be sure that he will attack you know, and I'm not the kind of person that, you know, there's a demon under every rock, that kind of a thing. I, you know, I think a lot of our problems are our own responsibility. But I have seen where, you know, ministries have come under, um, which you just can't describe it any other way, supernatural uh, attack because they're making headway. And personally, when you're, when you're growing in the Lord, sometimes it's his, you know, it's not a, uh, you know, a guy with a pitchfork showing up at the, he- you know, the base of your bed every morning. But he will send distractions into your life that will hinder you from reading the word, that will hinder you from prayer, that will hinder you from serving the Lord. And pretty soon, you're so tied up with your own life, you don't have time for God anymore. And guess what? That's exactly where he wants you. You know, you're not going out to the bars and hanging around with, you know, people you shouldn't be and doing all the bad stuff. But you know what? You're really not doing any good stuff either. And that's really where he wants you. He will tie you up so that you don't have any effectiveness or time to serve the Lord. 
And so, you know, when a, when a church stands for truth and begins to um, see headway in people's lives and people start to grow and people start to begin to reach for Christ, the enemy's not just going to take that sitting down. Um, he will try to disrupt that the best he can within and from without. Sometimes <laughs> the worst attacks come from within even from within a church, even from within a family, even from within a marriage. We have to be careful. Um, and his goal, really, is to undermine the work of Christ. So if he can undermine the work of Christ in your life, or if he can undermine the work of Christ in the church, so that the church or you become ineffective in the cause of Christ, he's one. He's one. Um, Satan so often succeeds in this, in this goal, and a lot of times Christians don't even realize it. And that's where he's winning, because they don't realize it. Um, so when Satan makes his attack, like the Philistines, it says here that he, he kind of had this raid. He, he it has the idea of spreading their influence around. You know, and it's, it's a perfect picture of really what the Taliban's doing in, in Afghanistan. They're spreading their influence around. I saw a map on Fox News where they had uh, portions of, of Afghanistan that were starting to be taken over by the, the Taliban and over a period of weeks, days. The whole map was red. It was like, where'd these guys come from? You know, they came out of their caves or whatever. But you know what? They made their move and nobody stopped them. And see, a lot of times that's how the enemy works. He'll attempt to affect as, affect as many areas of a life or of a church that he can. And he wants to do it all at once. So you're overwhelmed. Um, and when that happens, when that sense of overwhelming attack comes, a lot of people have the false impression that, you know what, this is just too big. This is too big. I can't deal with this. I'm just going to give in. <laughs> uh, and they stop believing that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. They don't believe that anymore. Because that's not their life experience, even though it's still true. And see, when he attacks, when Satan attacks a life, he will multiply his attacks so that the believer feels hemmed in on every side. So a lot of times, you know, even over the years as we dealt with couples going through marriage counseling and stuff, you know, we'll sit down for an initial meeting and you just kind of, you just to get, to get acquainted and you say, okay, well, what are some of the issues you're dealing with? And by the end of the hour... I'm like, there's no hope for these people. I mean, this is a hopeless situation. I mean, they got emotional issues, they got mental issues, they got medical issues, they got financial issues, they got issues with their kids, they got issues with their in-laws, they got and everything. They just dump it on you, and you, and they're like, okay, are well, you going to fix it? <laughs> you know? Oh my goodness! But that's how the enemy works. The enemy wants us to feel overwhelmed in every area of life. And when he attacks a church, a lot of times he'll set loose many tongues against it, within, without, to give the appearance that his way is the right way. And if he can, he, he will bluff us into believing that maybe we need to change sides. Maybe we need to compromise. Maybe we need to join his cause. As crazy as that sounds, I've seen people actually consider that. Um, if he can, he'll cause you to become discouraged and to lose hope in that precious fight of faith that we're called to live every day. I mean, if you doubt me, think of um, someone like Elijah. Uh, 
you remember Elisha, right? I mean, the, the study of, of what he went through. Look over at 1 Kings chapter 19. Because this is just a good illustration of how sometimes the enemy can, can work. 1 Kings chapter 19. And I'll just read this. I'll take a little time here and read this. You can just follow along in your Bibles. 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Ahab told uh, Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Great victory, right? Verse 2, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. I mean, he had an incredible victory. I mean, the Lord just sent down fire from heaven and all. I mean, crazy stuff, right? I mean, total, complete victory. But look at what it says in verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. What's he doing? He's running away. And he came and he sat under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. He's to the brink of suicide. It is enough now, O Lord, he says. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. So God is ministering to the servant of God. He saw his plight. He saw what he was going through. Verse 9, And he looked, and behold, there was, uh, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, miraculously provided. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days. Super, super food. <laughs> and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. God knew exactly what he needed. Verse 9. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. God is still reaching out to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? I think that's a question God asks us sometimes. What are you doing? Verse 10, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to let it away. It's amazing how sometimes we can become so focused on ourselves we don't see anything but ourselves we get depressed we don't eat we don't sleep and pretty soon we feel like we're the only one that has any problems at all and that's exactly what satan wants verse 11 and he said go out and stand on the mount before the lord and behold the lord passed by and a great strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the lord but the lord was not in the wind and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. 
And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Second time. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. He goes through the whole thing. And I, even I, only me, I'm the only one left, Lord. And they seek my life to take it away. Verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint uh, Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of uh, uh, Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of uh, Shaphat, of Abel Mahola, who shall anoint, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of uh, Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And I will leave seven thousand in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that was not that has not kissed him you know I tell you that story because here's a guy that just came off an incredible victory and yet what happened he was attacked and sometimes when you get attacked you don't even you don't even see clearly. You don't, you don't even see reality. He thought he was the only one left. And yet, what happened? The Lord was still there. The Lord provided <laughs> thousands of people to be there with him. So, you know, we, we need to be very careful that we're not taken in by the, the, the tricks and the head games and the traps that the enemy wants us to uh, believe in and follow. Uh, you notice here, back to... To judges, you notice where the enemy attacked, they attacked the very place where the opposition resided. They knew where Samson was, that's where they attacked, verse 9. Samson was in Judah, guess what? The enemy attacked in Judah. You know, the devil works the same way. He's not a, he's not a coward. He, when he is attacked by an individual or by a church, he will attack back. <laughs> there will be repercussions. Um... I say to you that our lives ought to be the kind of lives that Satan despises, that he hates, but loves to attack. Because then we know we're doing the right thing. You know, I'm always, sometimes I'll mention persecution, you know, sometimes we, we deal with persecution in our country. It's really not persecution, you know, somebody makes fun of you for being a Christian. Oh, I was persecuted today. I mean, we don't have any idea what persecution is in this country for the most part. But, with that being said, the persecution sometimes we do have to endure as believers um, pales into what the rest of the world has to endure. But I'm always amazed when I talk about that. I'll have some Christians come up to me and say, well, I'm so, so surprised that you say that you know, people are persecuting you. I've never been persecuted as a Christian. And I want to go, well, maybe you're not living as a Christian, pal. Maybe that's the problem. You know, uh, because that's, that's the truth. Maybe they're a, think they're an undercover Christian or something. Um, our church ought to be the kind of church that Satan hates, but loves to attack. And trust me, we live in an area, <laughs> you know, people do not um, flock to churches like this. Um, Satan ought to hate us because we're serving the Lord, and we're serving the Lord without fear. We're doing it 
for His glory. He ought to hate us because we're fearless in our life and in our testimony. Satan ought to hate us because we're not afraid to take a stand for the truth. I really believe that. He ought to hate us. But if he does, just trust me, don't be surprised when you're attacked. When you have circumstances in your life or in our church where you feel under attack. And you know what? The only way to avoid that, frankly, the only way to avoid Satan's attacks in your life or in your church is is never do anything for the Lord or against the devil. <laughs> just just be neutral. Just just kind of be in that safe zone. And and I find more and more that's where churches want to reside. They want to reside in that safe zone. They they don't want to teach things that are could be potentially divisive or they don't want to teach things that could potentially look um, bad by our culture. You know, that's just too hard. You can't talk about those things. People don't understand those things. As long as we do nothing, as long as we just stay uh, safe, then everything will be fine. And that's really what the Israelites were thinking. That's what the men here of Judah were thinking. That's why they came to Samson and said, don't you know these people are ruling over us? I mean, why wouldn't you go to him and say, hey, Samson, let's go kick these guys' butts. We're tired of being ruled. No, they gave in to it. And, and I believe that really, unfortunately, the sentiment in our country, even among Christians, and I've heard Christians say this, oh, well, what are you going to do? You know, we had our heyday as America, but we're going down the tubes now. There's no way we'll ever survive three more years of this. Oh, you know, whatever. They've given in. They've given up. I mean, now more than ever, we need to pray. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our country. We need to pray for uh, people in harm's way. We don't want to be in that safe zone. We don't want to just do nothing. When we take our stand for truth, when we take our stand for righteousness, and we take our stand for Jesus Christ, what do we do? We draw a big bullseye right on our back. That's what we do. And that's, that's a cost that a lot of Christians, unfortunately, don't want to deal with. They don't want to deal with it. I mean, that was really, uh, you know, Peter's experience. In, in, in Luke twenty two thirty one. I'll just read this verse for you. You don't even have to turn there, but... Luke twenty two thirty one. This is where Jesus is foretelling Peter's denial. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fall. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You know, he had a bullseye on his back. Why? Because Peter was making a difference. That was Paul's experience. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Paul says in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. In other words, Paul had a, a, a certain connection with the Lord that most people did not have. I mean, he got truth downloaded to him all the time. Wrote most of the New Testament. And he said, to keep me from being conceited, uh, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. If you've ever had a thorn, um, you know, we go back to Pennsylvania sometimes, I'll be pulling weeds or something, I get a thorn in, in my foot or in my hand, and it's just painful, uh, you know. Um, 
Here, a thorn was given to me in, a, in, a, in, in my flesh, and he says, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. See, it's when we, we think that we rise above all this, that we are some kind of spiritually elite individual, that oh, we don't deal with that anymore. Um, that's where Satan wants us. He wants us to think that, oh, we just coast. We're, you know, we're just coasting on the, on the, the grace gravy chain. You know, till till the Lord comes back. Um, no, we have to fight. We have to take a stand for the Lord, and it will be our experience as well when we take a stand for the Lord. You know that 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 we will we will sense the enemy's attacks. So that was the Philistines and their attack, and it kind of is a good illustration of how the enemy attacks us. But look at verses 10 to 13, because we see here what happens with their arrangement, Judah and their arrangement. First of all, they had a concern. When the Philistines attacked, what did the elders of Judah do? They panicked. <laughs> they didn't know what to do. They're probably thinking, whoa, 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 wait, we're doing everything you say. We're bowing down to you. You're, you're our captives. You know, we're, we're, we're captive by you. We're, we're, what's the problem here? And so they go to their enemy and they ask, why are you attacking us? What, what is the problem? Aren't we being compliant with you? See, sometimes we believe the lie that, you know, if we just compromise a little bit with people, if we just bend the truth a little bit and, and maybe not be as cut and dry as maybe the truth really is with people, then we can win them over. You know, if we just change the service to where, you know, someone who doesn't know Christ will just feel comfortable and they'll feel welcome and, you know, we'll play secular music and we'll speak in language they understand that, you know, eventually, eventually they'll, they'll like us. We want them to like us. <laughs> and it's, we're not the problem, okay? It's God. It's God. Um, and so we don't want to compromise, but here's what they did. They panicked and, and they... They go to their enemy. They're, now they're, they're talking with their enemy. They should have been fighting their enemy. They should have been killing their enemy. But they said, hey, why are you coming against us? And what are they told? They're told there in the verses that Samson and his activities, his actions against the Philistines, that's why. This is the catalyst why we're here. Because that guy, Samson, killed a bunch of us. And we're ticked off and we're coming to get you. We're holding you accountable. They don't seem to care that they're under Philistine bondage. They just accepted it. All that concerns them is that everything stays the same. We're willing to be your slaves, Philistines. Just don't attack us. But tell us what the problem is. We'll try to correct it. When I heard our president this week, disbelief. Well, it really depends on you know, the Taliban giving safe passage. Just, it's like, what are you talking about? You're going to trust these people? Are you insane? Colluding with the enemy. This is what these men of Judah were doing. They went to the enemy. All that concerns them is just keep everything the same. Let's just not rock the boat. Don't rock the boat, Samson. You're rocking the boat. I mean, they didn't even, apparently, even know what Samson was up to. They had no idea. They had no idea, no knowledge of his exploits. This is how disconnected they were. It's amazing. 
the one man they should have been following, the one man they should have been going to and saying, hey, help us here, get out from underneath this bondage, they didn't even know, they didn't even seem to know anything about. The one man who can deliver them from the oppression. But they, he wasn't even on the radar. Their concern is, oh, let's just keep everything the same. And you see their compromise here in verses 11 to 12. These men of Judah, it's an army of 3,000. That's pretty lot of people. <laughs> it's Samson's own, own people. What do they do? They go to him and they take him into custody. You know, they confront him about these activities that he's been doing. Hey, what are you doing? You're disrupting the boat here. And he explains to them, hey, look, I just gave back to them what they gave me. Which is kind of true. I mean, maybe a little overreaction there on Samson's part. But for the most part, I mean, they're the ones that started this by cheating with the riddle, if you remember. But you'll notice that neither the men of Judah nor Samson even mention God in their conversation. They don't even mention the oppression of Israel. They don't even mention throwing off the Philistine yoke. That's not even on their radar. What, who, who is Samson concerned with? Samson. <laughs> He's only concerned with Samson. And guess what? The men of Judah, on the other hand, they basically had given up. They just said, hey, we're just going to go along for the ride. That's okay. They want to they rule us. That's fine. Even though they're a pagan nation, we're God's chosen people. We don't believe that anymore. We're done. They are reconciled to the notion that they will never be anything more than slaves to the Philistines. And unfortunately, a lot of believers are in that same place today. They believe the lie that, oh, things can't change in their own personal life or in their marriage or in their family. Things, you know... They just give up. And when you give up, what do you do? You start to compromise. You start to compromise. Samson, obviously, does not want to fight his own people. At least he got that right. So after kind of collaborating their promise not to kill him, (laughs) which who knows if they even could have, uh, he allows them to, to bind him. And Samson wasn't stupid. He, he, was, he was selfish. He was sinful, but he wasn't stupid. He knew, I think, exactly what he was doing. Because, remember, he had a call of God upon his life. And maybe that call was coming to the surface here. We don't know. But he allows them to bind him with new cords. And, and these were ropes that have never been used before. Okay, these aren't some, you know, vines or ropes that they just dug up out of the the back closet somewhere. No, these were fresh, green, very strong ropes. If you wanted someone to to really bind them, this is what you would use. A man bound in ropes like these would have no chance of ever breaking free. They made sure of that because they understood, remember, his strength. They knew who, who they were dealing with. And Samson, almost, it seems, for the first time, what's he do? He acts in wisdom. It's like God gave him some insight here because had he resisted, Guess what would have happened? Obviously, there would have been a bloodshed of the people of Israel, big time. And they never would have followed him as their judge. 
and allowing the men of Judah to take him to the Philistines with his hands bound, guess what? It gave him the advantage, did it not? Because they were under the perception, wow, this guy's tied up nice and tight here. We'll take him out easily. We're going to have some fun with him first. The Philistines would be more likely to let their guard down if, if Samson approached them bound up, especially with new ropes. And you see here in verse 13, their choice. Men of Judah chose bondage over liberty. I mean, they could have very easily said, hey, let's just go kick these guys' butts and free us, you know, Samson, help us, help us in this. But they didn't. They were, they were so beaten down, they just... Status quo. That's what their, their rule was. They chose bondage over liberty. They chose the status quo over God's will for their lives. In effect, they chose the Philistines over the very man that God had chosen to lead them into victory. That's how down in the gutter these guys were. They were just, they had nothing left. Instead of being willing to take a stand against their own oppressors, the Philistines, they chose to sacrifice one of their own. Mind-boggling. I mean, in the actions of these men, we can really see a portrait of how many in the church, how they respond to the attacks of the enemies. Far too many in the church have adopted this motto. The motto goes something like this. You know, you have to go along to get along. Have you ever heard that? You have to go along to get along. What's that mean? They're afraid to take a stand for the truth. Why? Because they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Just keep everything the same. Don't cause disruption. They're afraid to say anything. They're afraid to do anything. They're afraid to, to take any position that might rock the boat. And let someone dare to rock the boat, and that person will often find themselves standing alone. While the very people who ought to be standing there along with you make deals with the enemy to protect their own hides. Trust me, I've, I've gone through this personally, <laughs> and it's so true. It's so true. The very people you think that would be like, yeah, go. Nope. They run for the hills. They don't have anything to do with you. You're toxic. You're one of those fundamentalist Christians. You actually believe homosexuality is a sin. Oh, my goodness. You believe abortion's wrong? You're actually going to say that? Don't you understand that that's offensive in our culture? I mean, these men, the men of Judah, are guilty on two fronts. First of all, one thing, they're guilty as if they had taken Samson's life themselves. They're just as guilty as the enemy. They didn't kill him, but what did they do? They delivered him to be killed. They knew what was going to happen to him. Exactly. You know, I mean, legally, an accomplice in a crime is as guilty as the, the, the perpetrator of the, the crime. In the true sense of the world. I mean, in the world, the, the true sense of the law. Today, we have this compromised legal system that is just obnoxious. So there is no justice anymore. <coughs> Romans chapter 1, verse 32, 
Paul writes, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. I mean, whether your participation in the attack of the enemy is implicit or explicit, guess what? You're still guilty. That's what troubles so many in our country today when we see our commander-in-chief just giving arms and people over to the death of the enemy. Almost like, well, this is, it's a pass. Give it a couple of weeks and people forget. And I mean, the decisions that this man has made these past five, ten days have probably set our country back 20, 30, 40 years. He'll be long in the grave before we really feel the impact of what's going on. When your participation is explicit, it means you carry it out. When your participation is implicit, it means you allow it to be carried out by your own silence, by failing to take a stand against it, or, or looking the other way, not rocking the boat. Well, they're also guilty on another front. They're guilty of seeking to maintain peace. By what? By, be, by betraying their own people. They betrayed one of their own. When the enemy is after one of God's children or one of God's churches, what does the rest of the body need to do? Take a stand. Take a stand with the one who's being attacked. God will judge us when we throw a fellow believer under the bus, so to speak, just to keep from rocking the boat or to maintain the status quo. God will hold us accountable for that. Trust me. I know how that feels. I know some of you know how that feels. And, and the only thing I can do is encourage you with the understanding that one day there will be a day of reckoning. <laughs> there will be a day of reckoning. Matthew Henry said it like this, Justly is their misery prolonged who to oblige their worst enemies thus abuse their best friend. Israel stayed in bondage longer than they had to. Why? Because they refused to take a stand with Samson. They refused it. See, at some point, I think we have to decide whose side are we on? What are we doing here? What's the purpose here? Why are we here? Either we, we fight with the Lord's army or else we fight against it. There's no middle ground there. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 12, 30. Whoever is not with me is what? Against me, right? Whoever does not gather with me scatters. He was very black and white. It wasn't like, well, you can have one toe in and one toe out. No, it doesn't work that way. The Christian life doesn't work that way. That's what the church has created it to be, unfortunately. But that's not what it is. And I'm very afraid for the church because who knows what's coming down, down the road. I mean, you're going to find out who's really part of the church when persecution really starts. When governing authorities start to begin to manage our free speech and what we can say and what we can't say and what we can teach and what we can't teach. 
when we can meet and when we can't meet. It's already happening. It's here. Well, look at verses 14 to 17. Samson and his accomplishment. When Samson was delivered to the Philistines, they must have thought, you know what? (laughs) Their troubles are over. When they saw him, it says there in the text, they shouted out to him. They, they shouted against him. The phrase probably means that they shouted in victory. Like, hey, we, we got it. And they launched their attack against him. What did they intend to do? They intended to kill him. They intended to kill him. Now, of course, their, their excitement would be short-lived, but still. Look at his power in verse 14. In spite of all of his failures, and this is what should give us hope. In spite of all his failures, all his sin, all his selfishness, everything. What does God do? He, by his grace, by his mercy, he continues to use Samson. Continues to use him. It says, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. Um, this was a supernatural empowerment by the spirit of God on Samson. This was something he didn't do even in his own strength. Even though he was very strong, he needed the Spirit of the Lord to come upon him, or he still would have been tied up. And it says the new cords that bound him became as easy to break as burnt flax threads, which are like pieces of thread that are burned. So it's just like there's nothing there. And the Bible says his bonds were, were loosed. It means to melt or dissolve. He was free. He was free. The path to liberty in this life is not through our own strength. It's through what? It's through the Spirit of God. It's always through the Spirit of God. We can't live this Christian life in and of ourselves. It's impossible. That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Not bondage. Freedom. See, we're often bound by our own sinfulness, by our own problems, by our own circumstances, you might say. But guess what? When we yield all of that, as we're called to do on a daily basis, to the Spirit of God, what happens? We walk in His power. We walk in His strength. The things that that bind us, guess what? They lose their hold. And pretty soon we're walking in victory. We're set free to serve the Lord. For his glory. I mean, this is really the secret to liberty, to freedom in the Christian life. And it's simply to yield to the control of the Spirit of God every moment of every day. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. We know that verse. Ephesians chapter 5. Do not get drunk with wine, he says. For that is wrong, it's debauchery, sinful. But be what? Be filled, be controlled with the Spirit. That's what happens when you get drunk with wine. When you get drunk with wine, what's controlling you? Right? You're, you, if, you, if you get a DUI, you're, you're getting arrested because you're under the control of a substance, controlled substance. You shouldn't be drinking or taking drugs when you're driving or using machinery or doing whatever. Why? Because you're not controlling your own actions. You, you're compromised. And so he says, don't get drunk with wine. Don't be under the the influence of wine or alcohol. That's wrong, but be what? Be under the influence of the Spirit. 
That's really what we do each and every day when we, when we sin. We, we, we take control of our own lives. That's why we're sinning. <laughs> because if the Spirit is in control of my life, I'm not going to be sinning because the Spirit of God doesn't sin. But yeah, we're in a sinful world. We're in a sinful body. We've got temptations all around us. So yeah, we're going to fall. But what, what happens when that happens? Do we just give up and eh, we'll just stay in bondage? Some people do. Man, not me. I run back to the Lord. I confess my sin as I'm instructed to do. Thank him for his forgiveness. Shake it off and I move on. And I ask the Spirit to take control of my life again. And, and you know what? It's, it's a whole new slate. See, don't believe the lie that, that you still got an ankle bracelet on, you know, because you, you sinned and you did this back here and, and somehow that, that just holds you down. There's some people that, that really believe that. But in Christ, our sins are forgiven. Now, granted, you know, there may be circumstances, there may be repercussions from sins of your past, but even with that being said, okay, um, you can still serve the Lord whole, wholeheartedly um, when you're filled with the Spirit, when you're controlled with the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 18, Paul says this, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other. It's almost like, okay, you didn't understand what I said the first time, I would say it again. <laughs> to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You know, I don't think there's a Christian alive that would say, I just, I just, I want to sin. I want to sin against God. If you're a true believer, that's not your heart. You, you want to live a life of holiness. You want to live a life of purity. But guess what? You have desires. You have fleshly desires. And they're against God's calling you to live that life of holiness. So who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to allow to control you? That's really what Paul is saying. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not going to be involved in those things. Verse 15, his performance. Samson picks up, it says there, the fresh jawbone of a donkey. He kills a thousand men with it. A thousand men. I mean, that's just crazy. And remember, these aren't just, you know, I mean, these are warrior kind of men. <laughs> these aren't guys that, you know, are just wandering around in the desert somewhere. These are guys that are, they came to do battle, right? So he, he kills a thousand of them with it. The, the Bible calls it a fresh jawbone. And, and the reason is, is because even though it's been probably lying in the sun for a long period of time, um, you know, this one was fresh. If it's been laying there forever, if you've ever been out in the woods and you find a, a bone that's been there for years, you can pick it up and they're, they're pretty brittle. I mean, they're still strong, but they're pretty brittle. But if you get a bone that's freshly out of a, a slain animal or a slaughtered animal, guess what? It's a lot stronger than one that's been sitting out in the, in the elements for a long time. And so this was a, a fresh jawbone. It was strong. It wasn't likely to break. Um, if, it, if it wouldn't have been fresh, it wouldn't have helped him. It would have broken probably after the third guy. Um, this jawbone is a dangerous weapon in the hands of Samson. Um, and I think by way of illustration, our jawbone can be a dangerous weapon. I think there's probably been more damage been done in lives, personally, in families, and in churches by the weapon of somebody's jawbone, their tongue, basically, 
than any other. Uh, James speaks of that in James chapter 3, verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, he says, and set on fire by hell. Sometimes our tongue can, can just cut someone down right off at the knees. Washington Irving said this, A sharp tongue is the only edged tool that grows keener with constant use. <laughs> William Norris, a poet, he wrote this. He says, If your lips would keep from slips... Five things observe with care. To whom you speak, of whom you speak, and how, and when, and where. <laughs> it's a good reminder. Publius, the Greek philosopher, said this, I have often regretted my speech, but never my silence. Good, good tips for us all. That's just something to think about. Well, the last thing here is his problem. In verses 16 to 17, it says, And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, and the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men? And he threw the jawbone after he's done uh, speaking. And the place was called Ramath-Lehi. And, and after Samson's victory, he composes this short poem, this short riddle, whatever it is about it. And he even renames the place, Ramath uh, Lehi, which means the height or the hill of the jawbone. And it refers to the, really the, the pile of bodies that Samson made with this weapon. And Samson is pleased with his victory, but he seems untroubled by the fact that in accomplishing this victory, he has once again, guess what? defiled himself. Remember the, the vow. The vow just keeps coming back to haunt this poor guy. Now he's just surrounded by all these dead bodies. He's not even supposed to be near a dead body, touch a dead body. Let alone the donkey was an unclean animal. The law did not allow a Jew to touch the carcass of a, of a donkey. So it's kind of an interesting, interesting thing here. He just has no sense um, of his commitment to the Lord. So once again, he has sinned against the Lord, violated his own vow of separation, and yet God, in his mercy, in his sovereign grace, still used him in this situation. And it's just another reminder, I think, of how, how God will accomplish his own um, purposes, his own, his own will, his own sovereign will, in spite of us. He did it in spite of Samson. Um, a lot of times churches and church people use ungodly means to achieve their goals. God in his sovereignty is able to bless in spite of our failure to walk in his own will. Um, I'm glad that my sin doesn't derail the purpose and plan of God. Amen? I'm glad that the, the, the wicked tactics of my enemies will not derail God's plan and purpose. God will do what he's going to do either with or without our cooperation, and that's his sovereign hand. Um, our foolishness 
will not even slow him down as we see in the life of Samson. He has a plan and he's working out that plan day by day. Uh, Psalm says in the, in the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 115 verse 3, it says, But our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he has pleased. And that's the God that we serve. No matter how things may appear, guess what? God is going to have the last word. Um, did you notice that Samson, by the way, is fighting the Philistines all by himself? All by himself. I mean, there are 3,000 men of Judah standing there watching this go on. And Samson has to fight the enemy all by himself. Doesn't give us any indication, but I don't think after the battle was over, no one came to congratulate him on his victory. When he needed water, down in verse 18, no one came to offer any assistance whatsoever. We'll see. They simply, what they do? They abandoned him. They abandoned, they abandoned Samson. They turned their backs and they walked away. And, and unfortunately, this is a sad remember, reminder of a sad truth. If you're going to serve the Lord, you had better be ready to stand alone. You had better be ready to stand alone. It's not always that way. But there will be times, I think, when you will have to find that you have been abandoned by the very people that you thought would stand with you. Many have stood alone against the world. Many people have stood alone against their own family. Many people have stood alone in a church with people filled with, with people who should have stood with them. You know, if you find yourself in that situation, um, remember that, that our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, said he would always stand with us, right? Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never, what? Leave you nor forsake you. It's not a losing battle we're in. Matthew 28, 20 says, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, Jesus said, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just because things look bad on the horizon doesn't mean that God has checked out. It doesn't mean the Lord has abandoned us. It may appear that we are alone, but guess what? We never really are because we understand the theological truth of God's presence with us. The one who matters the most is Always there with us. Always. Close with Psalm 121, verses 1 to 8. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord, verse 8, will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. 
uh, I reminded in closing of a story told of Roger Starbuck, who he was the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, and he led them to the championship in 71. And he admitted to the press that as his position as quarterback, as influential as he was on that team, he never, uh, for the most part, called any of his own uh, signals in the huddle, ever. Uh, Coach Landry, who was the coach, sent in every play. He had an incredible mind. Um, And he told Roger Starbuck when he was to pass, when he was to run, and only, and, and, and very seldom did it ever happen, but in emergency situations, could this quarterback ever change the play. And when he did, he had better been right. Because <laughs> there had been a lot, to, a lot of problems if he wasn't. And even though Roger Starbuck was an incredible mind, he considered Coach Landry to have a genius mind when it came to football strategy, to pride. And he said that, he should be able to run his own team. Starbuck later said, I faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, there was fulfillment, and there was victory. Because he, he went through a time when he thought, wait a minute, I, I'm in the quarterback. I should be calling the shots, not this guy. But it was only when he, he, he faced up to that, and he admitted that. Then they had harmony, fulfillment, and victory. And you know what? If this passage is about anything, it's about obedience. It's about Samson who failed in his obedience, and what would happen? Tragedy would follow. Judah, what did they do? They failed in their obedience, and what happened? Compromise follow. When we walk in obedience, we're going to find that same harmony, that, 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 that same fulfillment, that same victory in the Lord each and every day. And when we choose not to, guess what we find? We find chaos, we find emptiness, we find failure, we find defeat, we find depression. So ask yourself the question, where does this message find you personally? Are you clearly standing for the truth, for the Lord, for for the things of God? Or by chance have you compromised? Have you have you cooperated with the enemy, maybe in his efforts to attack the Lord's work and his people? Maybe like Samson, you've even allowed yourself to be compromised, to be defiled in some way, and you need to get clean. You need to go to the Lord and get clean. Maybe you're discouraged because you look at your life and you feel like you're the only one. You're you're all alone in the battles of life. No one else understands. Maybe today is the day when you, you, you would like to stand up and take your place with the Lord Jesus Christ and tell him that, you know what, I'm going to stand with you, Lord. I'm going to knock, stop playing this game, but I'm going to stand for you no matter what against the attacks of the enemy. Now's the time to obey. Now's the time to cry out to him and let him know that you're willing to take that stand with him. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the encouragement that we find even in a life such as Samson's who's kind of sinful and selfish and stuck on himself. But Lord, you still used him in a, in a mighty way. And Lord, it's not over yet. We'll see next, in a couple of weeks actually, when, when we meet again uh, 
what goes on in Samson's life. But, but Father, we pray that we would be able to look at our own life. And are we making that stand with you? Are we considering all the options and realizing that, you know what, we cannot compromise today in this world in our Christian lives. We need to stand out. We need to be a part. We need to be holy. We need to be peculiar, as the Bible says, for you. And Lord, when we do that, when we take that stand, yeah, we're going to feel some heat. It's going to be a little uncomfortable at work if we're, we're willing not to laugh at, at the jokes that are dishonoring to you. Or if we're willing to spend more time with you than those who want to just go have a great time. Lord, help us not to compromise. Help us to take seriously the things of God. Help us to know that you left us here for a purpose. There's people that we know that probably nobody else in this room even knows personally. And you've put us in their lives and in their way. And Lord, when we're there, we're, we're to share the love of Christ, the love of the gospel. The fact that you, you forgive sin. That you died, you came, you, you were raised on the third day. And when we put our faith and trust in your sacrifice, that you pay us, cleanse us from all of our sin, and that debt is paid in full. And we don't have to worry about the enemy taking advantage of us any, anymore because we're not going to stand for it. And Lord, if there's any here tonight who really want to cry out to you and, and just... confess the compromise that maybe has come into their lives, Lord. I pray that they would do that even now in the quietness of this moment. Help them to renew and recommit themselves to you. Thank you for the clean slate that lies before us. And Lord, we we do pray for our country. We pray for our leaders. We pray for those in Afghanistan and everything that's going on. We just pray that you would intercede Father, somehow. And Lord, if this is what we have to walk through, then Father, give us the courage, give us the faith to do so. And Father, now more than ever, that we would live for the Lord each and every day, that we have our priorities in their proper place. And Lord, we know that eventually this world's going to come un- unfurled. This is, it's just going to come unraveled big time. And Lord, we've been blessed by many Many, many years of peace and comfort in our own country. and That could be coming to an end. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to, to do what we need to do and to help keep our perspective on what's really important in this world. And it's your word is eternal and the souls of men and women are eternal. And, Lord, you've given us a message to share with others through our lips and through our lives. And I pray that we'd be faithful to do that. And we ask this In Jesus' name, bless us tonight in our fellowship together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.